Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Medicine, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Claire Clark, a host on the channel, and today we'll be talking to Nathan Carlin about his new book, Pastoral Aesthetics, A Theological Perspective on Principless Bioethics. Nate Carlin, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. This is fun. Yeah, great. Nate, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, sure. Um, I'm from Western Pennsylvania, north of uh, Pittsburgh. I went to uh, college at Westminster College in that area, studied European history, and uh, always wanted to become a minister. That was my goal in going to college. So after that, I went to uh, Princeton Seminary. And uh, there I studied with um, Donald Capps and Robert Dykstra. And uh, Capps became my um, most significant um, mentor in in life, kind of shaping my thinking and uh, writing Um, to this day, I think, uh, you know, I've had a number of mentors at, you know, each of the institutions that I've uh, studied at, and but CAPS was definitely the the most significant one. And then after seminary, I went, moved to Houston to go to Rice uh, University and studied psychology of religion um, there. And uh, when I came down to Rice, I became the uh, research assistant for um, Tom Cole, who taught um, across the street at uh, McGovern Medical School. He was and is the uh, director of the McGovern Center for Humanities and Ethics. And uh, after I finished up my graduate training at Rice, um, Tom was able to hire me at the McGovern Center. And so, um, so I've been here ever since. It was never my goal to teach at a um, medical school, but I, th- I think when you're um, in the humanities, um, you uh, have to be flexible and you have to walk through open doors and uh, you also have to be lucky, I think. And um, so a lot of those things sort of happen for me. And um, so the way I explain to people what I do is I essentially teach um, what could be considered sort of pastoral care to um, medical students, but you know we really just call it medical humanities. But um, I, th- I think that's a way of sort of making sense of my own kind of educational and intellectual uh, journey. Well, because you make a great point in your work, which is that the the history of pastoral care, you know, or religion and medicine. Um, it, that goes back further than than what we think of now as the medical humanities, and in some ways, those traditions are, um, and in some ways, the two movements are related. Which we'll get to that in a minute. Um, first, tell me how did you come to write pastoral aesthetics? Yeah, sure. Thank you. Um, I, I would say that the book, um, in a way, is a kind of stitching together or coming to terms with that identity. This this most of my training sort of dealing with history and religion and psychology 
in some way all through college, seminary, and graduate school, but then finding myself in a medical context. Um, so, so it was sort of like, well, what does that sort of mean for me? Like, how, how do I complete this transition to the um, medical context? And you know, when I, you know, I'm, you know, very grateful. Like I said, and you know, very lucky and fortunate to have gotten this job. Um, but I, I would say that it, it was it was very hard in the beginning. You know, um, landing in a, a medical context that was very uh, sort of not familiar to me. I I would say that you know, in a medical context, there's 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 much more of a um, hierarchy that that uh, professors. Uh, feel that you don't feel as much. I don't think at sort of call regular colleges or universities, the culture is, is, you know, much more rigid, you know, we're expected to, you know, come into the office every day, nine to five. And, you know, that's just not the life of a regular kind of uh, professor. And there was also sort of new expectations for me to sort of write in medical humanities and to write in bioethics Whereas all my previous training was essentially in pastoral theology or psychology of religion. And that, that's where my real interest was. And so for a long time, I would say I sort of resisted bioethics kind of because I was sort of expected to do it, you know. Uh-huh. And, um, uh, but in time, like, I guess, you know, so I, I just finished up my you know, 11th year and, uh, at the medical school. And I would say over time, I, I sort of, I, I came to sort of accept my role. And so in this book, it was going to be, well, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it in a different way and I'm going to do it my way. You know, I'm going to try to make this somehow my own and somehow interesting. And um, I guess that's sort of what I want most from the book. I'd like people to read it and think, you know, this is interesting. I I never would have thought about things quite like this before, you know. Um, it really is an original perspective and creative perspective, I think, on bioethics. Um, I'm. Can you tell us a little bit about how pastoral theology and bioethics are connected? Sure, yeah. You know, for I, I would say most people listening to this, you know, probably don't know what pastoral theology is probably most people have some sense of what bioethics is because you know bioethics is in the news you know every week at least you know if not daily and uh, for you know some reason or another but pastoral theology would basically be the theory behind pastoral care or the theory behind or the theology behind chaplaincy and you know things um, like that and I would say that comparing the history of bioethics to the history of pastoral theology, I would say that, you know, pastoral theology in a modern sense is maybe, you know, 10, 20 years older than bioethics has slightly different roots. Um, so if bioethics really gets going in the, you know, late 60s, 70s, 80s, Pastoral theology would get going probably in the 50s, maybe. And um, the founding um, figure or an influential figure in that regard would be Anton Boysen, who's credited with the, the founding of the uh, CPE movement or clinical pastoral education um, movement, which is um, how chaplains 
or trained. And he had this sort of very basic idea of, of the living, what he called the living human document. And his point was that in seminary, if you if seminary students are spending all this time studying the Bible as a text or um, doctrines as, as text, he says, well, what about people? Can't we study people as though they were texts? Can't we study people as rigorously as we do these sort of other things? And so he called that the living human document. And that's just a phrase that he lifted from William James, actually. It's uh, in the varieties yeah. of religious experience. It's right on. That's one, one of my favorite thing. books. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, it's everybody. It's impossible not to love James. Everybody. Um, you know, he loves James. He's just such a generous and thoughtful and creative thinker. And so Boyson is just, you know, taking this phrase from James, a living human document, and applying it to uh, theological education. And also in that time, I would say, you know, in the 50s and so forth, um, psychology is kind of really taking off in the United States, especially psychoanalysis and, and um other forms of psychology as well. Carl Rogers is huge, not psychoanalytic in any sense whatsoever. But Carl Rogers is huge in terms of the development of pastoral care and, and pastoral um, uh, theology. And and then writing culturally at this time, you have people like Philip Reef or Christopher Lash or Robert Bella, all writing about the shift in American culture becoming what Reef calls a therapeutic culture or what Lash calls a culture of narcissism. But um, all of these sort of this main, this huge American shift toward the inner life and I don't know, and around, you know, the 50s and 60s and continues to this day and is only amplified by means of social media um, where we sort of look inward and we write our lives and tell about ourselves and things like that. So I think pastoral theology um, is in part of that. It's in tension with it. Um, but it definitely benefited from it in terms of um, making pastoral theology sort of have a a significant place at the table in theological schools and and sort of education. And so bioethics would get started, you know, just a little bit after that. You can tell the history of bioethics in a number of ways, but, um, you know, it's, I think it is compelling to think about it in terms of crisis, the Tuskegee syphilis study and, and the creation of new medical technologies and with dialysis and so forth. And so we create new problems that um, we, we didn't know how to deal with sort of before, which relates to another sort of larger movement and just philosophy in general, where in the early 20th century, if the main ways of doing philosophy are either going to be continental, where you're thinking about power relations and, um, phenomenology and and so forth, or sort of the American kind of um, thinking about um, uh, the meaning of words. What does does it mean to say um, the word evidence? Or what what, what are all these different concepts and context, you know? So if American philosophy is rigorous in a kind of very different way that almost becomes a form of logic, I would say both schools of thought, continental or um, American, um, didn't pay that much attention to sort of applied philosophy or ethics. And so um, this 
movement towards applied ways of thinking, you know, kind of begins in the 70s and is uh, continued to this day. And the most important essay in bioethics is going to be Stephen Toulmin, How Ethics Saved, or How Medicine Saved the, the Life of Ethics. And uh, so that's, that's a good single place to go kind of read about this movement in general and um, the move towards the practical. So I would say that that's a long way of saying, I guess, pastoral theology and bioethics are both practical and that there was a movement in sort of, I don't know, I guess around 19, the 1970s that uh, they would be connected at that level. Um, Okay, so well, can you tell us what um, what are what the bioethical principles are that you write about, um, and then what are some of the common criticisms of principalist bioethics? Sure, yeah. So the the, the principles that I'm uh, sort of writing about are coming from the sort of most cited book in bioethics by Tom Beecham and Jim Childress called Principles of Biomedical Ethics. And um, they have uh, four principles there, respect for autonomy, beneficence, non-maleficence, and justice. And those four principles are an elaboration of three principles coming from the Belmont Report, um, which the principles there were respect for persons instead of respect for autonomy, beneficence, and justice. And so that was a short government document published in the 70s that was commissioned after the Tuskegee syphilis study where about 400 African, poor African-American men were uh, experimented on for 40 years, 1932 to 1972. And um, the United States public health service was sort of observing, but not treating syphilis in these men, even after penicillin was available and could have cured them. And um, so the, the study wasn't hidden, but it wasn't widely known about either until 1972 when uh, a journalist sort of brought it to the attention of the American public. So there was just all kinds of outrage. So the government commission sort of said, okay, scientists and doctors need oversight. Before we just trusted them to be ethical on their own, we can't really do that anymore. And so the Belmont Report is what came out of that. Now, Tom Beecham was an intern at NIH uh, at the time. And then he was given the job of, you know, after this retreat, as the way he tells the story, is saying, okay, now we got to define what these principles mean, you know. And uh, mm-hmm. so, the, so the intern had to do it, you know. That, that's uh-huh. how he, he, yeah. So he, he, this is how he tells the story, you know. But, um, and I, I believe it, actually. And, um, <laughs> And because uh, I see how sort of organizations work. And uh, um, so then he, you know, I guess he kept running with it. You, I guess we could ask him, but he kept running with it and then sort of wrote this book. And this book is in, you know, I don't know, seven, eight, nine editions now. And it's just so unbelievably influential. So those are the, the principles. I, I take them, these four principles from Beecham and Childress that have roots in the Belmont Report. But um, there are other people who have offered other principles. Dentistry, for example, takes these four principles from Beecham and Childress. They add a fifth, veracity. And uh, I think Robert Veach has another set of principles. I think he has seven principles. So when we, I just want, I'm, that's just a long way of saying principalism 
you know, it doesn't have to be these four principles, but these four principles are the dominant ones. So those are the ones that sort of, um, I, those are the ones on, on the step exam, right? Those yeah, are the ones that we, we test the medical students on, these yeah, four principles. That's right. It would be these four. In a clinical context, these four principles are dominant. That's that's absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. And um, so, yeah, so that's the four principles. I, was there something else that you wanted me to say? Yeah, yeah. No, what, what, um, criticisms. What oh, are some but, common so, – what are some – because your book engages yeah. – um, critics of principles bioethics but it it does it in i think kind of a an interesting way yeah yeah that's right yeah so i think to to talk about the the criticisms of this method one i think it would be just important to acknowledge that i think a lot of the criticisms come out of envy (laughs) that Mm -hmm. um these these guys beecham and childress have been so successful i think everybody envies them is resentful for their their success and so forth um, but that said, I think that there really are genuine sort of weaknesses as well. One would be that if you look at these four principles, you say, well, is this really a coherent system? You know, like, um, these, and I, and it doesn't, it doesn't really seem so they offer a method of weighing and balancing and specifying and so forth. But if you're a sort of a liberal person and you come to take these sort of principles, you can get, you know, come to certain conclusions. If you're a conservative person or a libertarian or something like that, you can come to very different kind of conclusions um, with their sort of method. So I think that is a weakness. And I think that would be um, in contrast with a, a much more coherent system would be the sort of the ethics of Peter Singer, a utilitarian. You know, you may hate Singer and his conclusions, but it's a from a systemic point of view. It's a remarkably sort of beautiful and coherent system, you know. Um, so I would say that that is sort of one kind of um, criticism. It's just it's really not it's not a coherent system principalism. And two, I think the the more standard and the, the, this is where I would sort of come in and from medical humanities sort of point of view or literature and medicine point of view and an anthropological point of view, the criticism of principalism tends to be that all these kind of short cases are sort of disembodied. They're not connected to lived experience. And uh, there's no serious um, consideration given to social context. So experience and context would be the, the, the main kind of medical humanities or narrative um, kind of critiques. And I think that's right. You know, and and say, well, you say, well, how, how, what does that mean? Can you give me an example? Mm-hmm. So I was at uh, ASBH, American Society for Bioethics and uh, Humanities, uh, you know, this past uh, fall. And I went to the session on uh, surgical ethics. It was really interesting. And uh, there was um, a heart surgeon given a presentation, you know, just a very short case, you know, three, four sentences. And it's basically a, a drug user. I can't remember if it was heroin or cocaine. I, I don't know if there's a difference. Maybe it's the same. Um, a drug user, when you do these uh, sort of hard drugs, you can, uh, I guess, fairly off in a rut- fairly routinely blow a heart valve. And so when you do that, you have to have it replaced or you die. So um, this has been a, a classic sort of dilemma in um, 
surgical ethics, which would be how many times do you give somebody a new um, heart valve? And that's that was the discussion. So the old, you know, back I guess maybe I don't know twenty thirty years ago, the answer would be yeah, you always give it to them the first time, and then the debate is about do you give it to them a second time? But now in you know fall of twenty nineteen, he was pushing it further, saying um, the debate now is do you give it to them a third time? And he was talking about a real case, but. Um, and he said the reason why it's sort of a legitimate clinical ethical issue now is because of uh, advances in technique that make the third doing it a third time much more um, effective and safer and so forth. You know, so that's that's where the debate is at now and surgical ethics kind of on this issue. And so, you know, that that's fine. I think in general to sort of come to these kinds of um, to have these discussions. But just this week, I was reading um, a memoir called Intern by uh, Sandy uh, Jahar, where he's writing about this exact issue and a patient that he had in New York um, hospital where um, the surgical team was refusing to do it a second time. You know, that's the sort of the mm-hmm. old, the old wisdom. Mm-hmm. And, mainly on these grounds, but also because the patient was HIV positive and the surgeon says, you know, this, this drug user is going to put me at risk, going to put my family at risk. Um, he's probably just going to go back to using drugs sort of again. It's for no benefit. And then, but um, Jahar, you know, was talking with um, uh, the, the patient um, who, you know, in depth, who really did want to stop using drugs. And so he was um, just really torn up kind of by all of this. So I think that with that narrative kind of critique or that contextual kind of critique sort of gets into is all of these emotional elements of the conversation that take a lot of time and a lot of depth and a lot of space. And I think that in general, Principalist bioethics just doesn't do that, and it but it could, you know. So it's not mm-hmm. an inherent it's not an inherent flaw of principalist bioethics. It just doesn't do it, and I think that's reflective in the ASBH sort of um, ethics um, kind of presentation. So that my book is an attempt to then sort of kind of go deeper than that to to think about conversations and emotions both of patient and the, the caregivers and, and so forth you know so in that sense um i kind of critiquing the as you said the i'm critiquing the critics of principalism mm-hmm. by saying that you know this really this could be done in a better way and we don't have to just dismiss principalism on these grounds even though they do tend to fail in this regard so let's let's talk a little bit about how um, you you bring this kind of richness to to principalist bioethics. Um, you use this method, and it's Paul Tillich. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah okay. Mm-hmm. Is his method of correlation? Can you tell us what what is that method, and and how did you come up with it? Yeah, Paul Tillich is um, he is I don't know and and. How you would rank them, but definitely in the top ten or top five, something like that. Important theologians of the 
uh, 20th century. And he, he was very important uh, to me personally because in college, um, you know, I think I had a genuine faith crisis because of my education, being exposed to historical method, biblical criticism, and, and so forth. I was more or less raised as a fundamentalist, and college sort of tore all of that down. And, um, and that faith crisis sort of continued into um, seminary until a, a friend of mine there uh, told me that uh, told me about uh, Paul Tillich, and he said, you really need to read this book called Dynamics of Faith. And, uh, you know, so I picked it up and um, the basic argument that Tillich is making in the first two chapters of that book is that doubt is a part of faith and sort of once uh, and believing in God does not require um, or um, being religious does not require a sacrifice of the intellect. And so once I had that permission to doubt and permission to sort of not sacrifice my um, intellect. I, I, I think that is what freed me from the f- faith crisis. Mm-hmm. And then that just got me interested in Tillich in general, his basic method of correlation. And that would be the main project of his whole work, which is by correlation, he means correlating theology and culture. So um, w- what does that mean? So Tillich says theology must speak to contemporary experience. If it doesn't, then theology is sort of um, kind of worthless. So an example of a theological idea that doesn't make sense to us today would be when people in the Middle Ages were debating how many angels could fit or dance on the, the head of a needle, you know, mm-hmm. so it's like, that, that, that yeah. just doesn't mean anything to us now. So that's an example of <laughs> theology <laughs> not being relevant. But Tillich says kind of the same thing about core doctrines, like the idea of God, even, or the idea of sin. So what, what, what can sin mean to a modern kind of um, intellectual um, person? And Tillich's answer would be that, that sin is not really so much about drinking, smoking, gambling, you know, things like that that um, sin is really about the sense of estrangement and despair we feel in life. And so he's picking up directly on existentialist philosophy, psychoanalysis. And so Tillich was very friendly to all of these, anything that can help us understand the human condition um, is valuable. And those things must be sort of included in in theology. So um, God, Tillich argues, is um, what he calls the ground of being. And in that sense, God can give us, God is the ground of being, can give us the courage to be, the courage to sort of face our despair. So a lot of it, just like existentialist philosophy, um, can seem sort of, you know, I don't know, deep or convoluted or, or abstract or, or some, you know, something like that. But a lot of his ideas can, were made more practical in his sermons. And he has a sermon on sin called You Are Accepted that I think that um, kind of reflects this kind of rethinking of, of what sin can mean to sort of a modern person. So, so that's, the, that's the method in, in, in general is how to make theology relevant to, to us today. He calls that the method of correlation. He's very open to so-called secular disciplines, philosophy, psychology, and so forth. 
And so I thought, well, what if we took that grand method and, and, and took bioethics for culture and sort of these images of, of pastoral care for theology? What if we put those things sort of in conversation? What would we get then? You know, so then I took these these the four these four core principles of bioethics, and then I took four images of pastoral care, and just correlated them, just to see what we would get, and to sort of um, uh, see if it could help us see bioethics in a um, in a new way. How did you select the images of pastoral care? Because I I know you say in the epilogue, really, we could choose. I mean, we could choose any image almost to go with a principle. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yep. Yeah. So um, since this was the, my first kind of sketching out of the, the project as a whole, um, uh, some of the images I, I, I felt like um, kind of had to be included. So the first one I mentioned, Anton uh, Boys in the Living Human Document. Mm -hmm. So that's going to be the kind of the founding image of the discipline. So I thought, well, that one should be included. And uh, then the sort of dominant image of our time right now is an image called the Living Human Web. And that was um, offered by uh, uh, Barney Miller McLemore at, um, at Vanderbilt. So I thought, you know, to have the founding image and then the contemporary image. So that's two of the, two out of the four. Then there was a third image called the Diagnost- Diagnostician by uh, Paul Prizer. Um, I thought, well, that one just seems so medical related. That one kind of has to be <laughs> in, you know. Uh-huh. And, um, and then I, I actually had a different uh, image um, when I proposed the book to Oxford called the Self-Differentiated uh, Samaritan. That, that, that's an image um, by uh, Jeannie Mosner. And, um, and that's kind of a, a feminist image and it draws on family systems theory and psychology. And I, I wanted to use that image, but then, um, I got critiqued in the peer review. They said, ah, it doesn't really make sense. And, and, um, so I thought, okay, well, I went back, looked at the images and then there was an image of uh, chaplaincy called the circus clown. And so I just swapped the circus clown in for, um, the self-differentiated um, Samaritan, and uh, and then I, I just put um, put the images uh, in order and together, and I didn't really think it mattered too much which one went with which, and um, so I would say that um, the the other thing that um, I did in terms of the method in each of the four substantive um, chapters was I wanted to pick. Um, since the critique of principalist bioethics is that there's not enough experience and context there, I wanted to pick materials rich in experience and context sort of for the correlations to do their work in. And so in um, the, the, the first chapter on um, the living human document and, and human web, for instance, I looked at a novel. And then in the chapter after that, I looked at... Um, to uh, memoirs for experience. And then the chapter after that, it was a long um, pastoral um, care conversation, sort of kind of original material um, in that regard. And then in the last chapter for justice, um, I was sort of opening up the analysis in a, um, in a kind of a macro way. And so there I, I drew on um, journalism. So I thought that those were all, I wanted to have different kinds of um, human 
sort of experience and, and analyses of, of context in each of the, the chapters um, to do um, the correlations with. And then I'm glad you, you mentioned the point about the epilogue saying that you can use any principle with any image and you could use different principles if you wanted to use Bob Veach's principles or something like that, or if you wanted to use an existentialist, say, myth of Sisyphus or a Hindu image or a Muslim mm-hmm. name of God or something, that's all um, uh, totally fine. And uh, so for me, the important thing is the call to um, creativity, I think. And it's sort of, not, even my conclusions, I don't mm-hmm. think matter all that much to me as much as the process, you know? Uh-huh. <laughs> so um, I know that's kind of a strange thing to say in bio. I, yeah. I know. Can you, t- well, it, your interpretations though are, are really original. Um, and I wondered if you could say a little bit about how your own experiences, whether with, you know, clinical ethics, working at a medical school um, with training and pastoral care, um, how how do your own experiences inform your interpretations of of the images that you chose? Yeah, that, that, that's a that's a good question. I you know I I really liked the um, even though I didn't even have it um, included in the, the the first proposal. I I ended up I, I really did like the the, the circus uh, clown, and um, you know I I went through uh, and the guy who offered it uh, Faber. Um, uh, you know, was a chaplain himself. And um, so it wasn't meant to sort of make fun of chaplains at all. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I think it, it kind of comes across that way if you don't know the, the context of the image. But the idea of the, the chaplain as a circus clown is that in the context of the hospital, um, you have people doing high-powered technical things like heart surgery or nurses putting in um, IV lines and uh, so forth, and that require great technical skill. And the chaplain, looking at all of that, may feel sort of like he or she doesn't have that much to offer. That they're sort of like a clown. Where in the circus you have the people taming lions or doing mm-hmm. trapeze acts and so forth. So, uh, but um, Faber says in the circus, the clown is the one who sort of reminds everybody. That you know, after all, we really are human, and um, as impressive as all these things are, um, they they too are human, and it sort of brings everybody back down to earth. And the chaplain serves that kind of role as well. That um, you know, yeah, medical professionals do save lives, but um, they are not God, and. Mm-hmm. Um, the chaplain sort of helps everybody, um, you know, come back to come back to earth as well. Where, especially when, and, I, and I, for me, I think there, there were two practical implications of that of coming down to earth. Mm-hmm. One has to do with sort of our expectations of medicine. I think that we can make medicine into an idol. I think if you wanted to read about that in a in a, a, um, a secular way, you know, Dan. Callahan's book, Taming the Beloved Beast, is a good sort of book in bioethics on sort of how we have made medical technology an, an idol. And, um, and that really hurts us all. And I think that that can inflict so much suffering at the end of life 
if we're if 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 medicine and life itself is an idol and we don't have life and death sort of in proper perspective um i think things get worse for individuals and families and healthcare professionals who are who are living through um uh prolonged kind of suffering and i think the other sort of component of the clown you know the clown is funny the clown mm-hmm. <laughs> you know to plays pranks and jokes and so forth yeah and so there's a lot of humor in the hospital um sometimes behind the backs of patients sometimes patients themselves are cracking jokes to health professionals and you know bioethics and the literature on professionalism they address this but they never really address it in a psychological way that's sort of satisfying to me and i i kind of really like freud has has this kind of short essay on humor where he's writing about humor um, as a defense mechanism, but carried out by the superego. And we normally don't think of the superego as coming to the ego's defense. We normally think of the superego as cruel and harsh. It's our conscience. It's the one that tells us we're terrible. We're a failure. We need to be perfect. But sometimes life is so hard and the situation is so unbearable that the superego, like a caring parent, says, you know, it's really not that bad. This is just life after all. And we can laugh about it. Life is a joke, you know. And mm-hmm. I thought that that um, was a, a, it's, we normally don't think of Freud as being that gentle. And we don't think <laughs> of the superego as being that gentle. Yeah. And um, I just really like that. And I think it sort of helps us sort of understand all of the jokes, especially that patients make, that usually go sort of whenever, pay, you know, time and time again, patients, I hear either read about or hear patients making jokes to doctors. And then the the health profession or nurse or doctor usually just don't react in any way whatsoever because they don't know what to make of it, you know, because they probably feel like they're in a double bind. If I laugh at the joke, then um, am I laughing at the patient? If I So I'm just going to kind of not sort of acknowledge that it ever happened. But I think it's sort of an expression of a patient's deep anxiety and um you know, I think some kind of gentle affirmation of that anxiety and the joke is kind of definitely sort of appropriate. And I think that um, that's also often, not always, often what is going on with um, kind of dark humor um, of uh, doctors and nurses as well, that uh, the suffering that they're sort of being exposed to day in and day out um, is uh, the, the the common way they they put it is like if I if I didn't laugh about it I would I would cry or I would crack up or I I wouldn't be able to do this job if I didn't laugh about it you know and so I think um, that that image of the circus clown and Freud and psychology and so forth um, sort of turns our attention to humor is a serious moral consideration in ways that I think are richer than the language of professionalism normally gives us um so that i I think that is i i I love that and 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 you know i just um 
I, it kind of answers my next question too, mm-hmm. which was to talk about sort of practical application. I see so, I see so much potential for this method of correlation in teaching where we could use texts other than clinical cases to illustrate the principles. Um, but I, I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about how, how the book could be applied to really the everyday work of clinical ethicists or of chaplains? Yeah, yeah. I think for um, clinical eth- ethicists, I think it would be um, really a, a call for them to um, read pastoral theology and to um, become engaged with it. Um, I, I think that it's probably not on the radar in any kind of significant way, but I would say that there's a whole dominant or dominance, not the right word, but a whole sophisticated tradition that they could draw on to sort of enrich their own thinking and writing and practice of um, clinical ethics. Now, for chaplains, um, I, in a way, I think that the the book is especially written for chaplains because um, I think in the context of the hospital, I, th- I think Ultimately, that sort of feeling of insecurity is is sort of right, that um, uh, chaplains feel as though it's not a level playing field. They're not being sort of invited into the conversations in a a full um, way. And I think that they may be a little bit sort of intimidated as well. So what this book sort of does, it sort of brings the tradition that they're very familiar with, and it says, it is legitimate and you can contribute, you know, so this is really a, you know, a call for creativity and a call for chaplains to sort of kind of um, draw on um, their tradition and their expertise to sort of um, uh, work in, kind of in bioethics. And then even sort of more broadly than that, I think kind of my message is that um, whatever your intellectual background is, it's sort of it can it can contribute in some way. I think that that is this the spirit of freedom, a spirit of creativity, and a spirit of um, kind of inclusiveness. Um, it's kind of what I'm getting at, and um, and I think that I don't expect my method, and I, I don't even wouldn't even sort of really want it to be like the the main way of kind of doing bioethics or something like that because I, I think clinical ethics um, is great and mm-hmm. we and we need it and um, what I, I'm just trying to offer something a little different that can help us see some other issues um, that I think are significant um, but maybe sort of you know kind of not there you know there are questions that we have to answer about um, gene editing and so forth that, um, uh, you know, need to be answered in, in, you know, maybe more standard ways. But I think thinking about things like, like, like we were talking about humor, um, I think these things are sort of important too, um, especially in the day-to-day life of the hospital. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think you're, I, I, if I remember the blurb about the book, I think it says something like um, that this approach enriches principalist bioethics. And that's, it really does. It, rather than being a, a, you know, a harsh critique, it, it, it really um, 
it just adds some some layers of complexity, you know, and and beauty even, you know, in some cases to, to some of these discussions about these principles. I just anyway, I think it's great. Um we have taken up a lot of your time. Um, can you tell us what what are we, what are you working on now? What's next? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, um, right now I am um, working on uh, two uh, very related uh, projects, both on the theme of doctor writers or physician authors, and uh, both of them are uh, edited books. Um, one is sort of about doctor writers, so it's about people like um, Atul Gawande and mm-hmm. Danielle Ofri and, and, you know, people like that. And so I have um, bioethics and medical humanities people sort of writing about these um, doctor writers in a, um, a scholarly but accessible way. And then the other book that I'm working on, edited book, is also about doctor writers but it is, um, cons- it's not about doctor writers, it's by doctor writers in the sense that um, I sent a call for proposal out to um, all of our graduates. We have about 200 graduates from our medical humanities program now. And, and I, I sent a call for proposals out and, um, and said, well, um, would you be interested in, in writing about your life um, uh, as a, a, um, a physician? Um, and so my hope is to cultivate these uh, young people into becoming sort of the next generation um, of uh, physician authors. So it's, it's both projects are very are meaningful um, to me in, in different ways. And uh, uh, so that, yeah, that's it. That's what I'm working on these days. <laughs> well, those, those both sound like great projects. Um, Nate, I want to thank you again for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. It's my pleasure, Claire. Thank you for having me. 